0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, shipwrecks, and smuggling that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13.
1: In April of 1926, dozens of reporters crammed into the living room of a small Upper West Side apartment, eager to hear from the tragic figure that was chain-smoking in the corner.
0: The 38-year-old woman was dressed head to toe in purple, a color she believed brought good luck. The dark circles under her eyes made her look weary, as if years of hard living had finally caught up with her.
1: Gertrude Lithgow, the infamous queen of the bootleggers, had been entertaining the press with tales of her adventures in the illegal rum trade for the last three years. But today, Gertrude prepared to tell her wildest story yet.
0: She took the jade cigarette holder away from her lips and made a shocking announcement. She was quitting the liquor business that had made her millions.
1: When reporters asked her why she was walking away from the trade that made her famous, she gave a surprising reply. It was the only way for the Rum Queen to rid herself of a supernatural curse. Picture a murderer,
0: a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals.
1: Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original, This week, we're continuing our discussion of Gertrude Lithgow's reign as the queen of the booze buccaneers during the Prohibition era. At Parcast,
0: we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkast.com slash merch for more information.
0: Last week, we covered Gertrude Lithgow's difficult childhood and how those early experiences drove her to pursue a life of adventure and independence.
1: In 1921, Gertrude moved to the Bahamas to represent a British import-export firm. Free from prohibition laws, she was one of many alcohol wholesalers who sold to rum runners. The runners then smuggled the contraband into the United States.
0: However, Gertrude faced pushback from the other exclusively male wholesalers. Her competitors bribed the Rum Runners, telling them not to purchase any of Gertrude's product.
1: She was forced to get creative. If the runners wouldn't bring her liquor to the people, Gertrude would have to sail it there herself. She loaded her cargo onto Captain Bill McCoy's schooner, the Arethusa, in the summer of 1923, and headed for Rum Row to sell her wares. In this
0: week's episode, we'll detail Gertrude's time in Rum Row and how she earned the respect of the men who ran the liquor trade and the adoration of the international
1: press. We'll also discover how a shipwreck, a false arrest, and a publicized trial brought about the downfall of the Bahama Queen.
0: On July 11, 1923, the Arethusa arrived at Rum Row after six days at sea.
1: Rum Row was the nickname used by both rum runners and the Coast Guard for the line of alcohol-laden ships that docked just outside the maritime limits of U.S. law enforcement, three miles off the coast of Atlantic City, New Jersey. The vessels acted
0: as floating liquor stores for those who were brave enough to sail past the Coast Guard and smuggle the goods onto dry land. And they carried much more than rum. Smugglers dealt contraband scotch, rye, gin, bourbon, champagne, and brandy.
1: Rum Row wasn't considered a suitable place for a lady like Gertrude. The boats were often targeted by hijackers and thieves. Captains like Bill had to be fully armed in order to protect their precious cargo.
0: Larger ships that were financed by mobsters, like Big Bill Dwyer and Charles' Lucky Luciano, featured happy hours, live music, and dancing. Call girls frequently sailed out to Rum Row, where they could charge double the price for their services.
1: Before we talk about psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy.
0: The forbidden fruit effect is the idea that forbidden substances, like alcohol, are actually more attractive to people because of their illicit status. Robert J. McCoon, professor of law and psychology at Stanford University, pointed out that the forbidden fruit effect is an illustration of the principle of scarcity. Humans associate scarcity with quality, so when something is restricted, we desire it even more.
1: Those who supported prohibition laws thought they were putting an end to immorality. In reality, crime flourished like never before.
0: Thanks to Bill McCoy, the crew members of the Arethusa were safe from most of Rumro's temptations. Bill was a strict teetotaler and forbade his men from drinking while they were on board. He also made sure that they didn't associate with the larger party boats as he felt it was safer to keep to themselves.
1: In her memoir, Gertrude described how the buyers arrived at Rum Row. Each evening at about five o'clock, we would search the horizon through the binoculars for the little speedboats. To me, they resembled little skimming bugs with white spray wings, speeding towards us on the water.
0: Buyers in motorboats docked alongside the Arethusa, where they could read the posted signs that advertised bills, liquor, and prices. Once the buyers came aboard, they were taken to Bill's cabin, where they could try samples and negotiate a deal.
1: While they were docked in Rum Row, no one on the Arethusa used their real names. Bill went by Captain Mac, and Gertrude used the nickname she had been given during her San Francisco days, Cleo.
0: Gertrude recounted a night where a suspicious man came aboard, He was by himself, which was unusual. Buyers usually came in small groups or pairs, as it was dangerous to sail to Rum Row alone.
1: She also noted that he seemed too choosy and wouldn't commit to buying anything, even after trying multiple samples. As he wasted time, Gertrude
0: realized that there were no guns currently on deck. She alerted Bill, who made up an excuse to go down below. When he returned, he was holding as many guns as he could carry.
1: As soon as the stranger saw the ammunition, he made his excuses and left. They never saw him again, which proved to Gertrude that he was not a regular buyer, and had been inspecting the ships along Rum Row to mark them for his hijackers.
0: The ship's cash box often held as much as $100,000, the equivalent of about $1.5 million today. This large amount of cash was a huge target for the thugs that frequently targeted the ships on Rum Row.
1: Bill hid the safe in his cabin, where his dog, a 130-pound Newfoundland named Old Faithful, stood guard.
0: Old Faithful had been with Bill since he was a puppy. The inseparable pair initially shared a single bed in the captain's quarters. When the dog got bigger, Bill built a second bed so Old Faithful didn't have to sleep on the
1: floor. One time, Bill decided to stay ashore in a hotel, leaving Old Faithful on the boat. In the morning, a hotel worker poked his head into Bill's room and asked if he owned a big black dog. Old Faithful had swum ashore and lay under Bill's window all night.
0: Bill had the utmost faith in his canine companion. He once explained that if anyone tried to touch the safe while Old Faithful was aboard, the thief would have to kill or be killed.
1: Bill McCoy also had a way to safely send deposits of cash ashore while he was docked in Rum Row. Ben McCoy, Bill's brother, was stationed on land in Atlantic City. Every few days, he'd take his
0: boat out to meet the Arethusa, bringing fresh water, fruit, and soft drinks for the crew. Then he'd sail back with an envelope of the cash. These periodic deposits ensured that if the Arethusa was hijacked, they wouldn't lose all of their profits.
1: While hijackings and kidnappings were prevalent, the United States Coast Guard was the biggest threat to smugglers. They frequently patrolled the waters around Rum Row in their large 200-foot-long cutter ships. The Arethusa, by comparison, was only 130 feet long.
0: The Arethusa was safe from prosecution as long as they stayed behind the Rum Line, which marked the end of the U.S.'s maritime jurisdiction. Buyers, however, risked arrest every time they crossed the rum line to carry their liquor purchases ashore.
1: Gertrude recounted a disturbing story about the Coast Guard in her memoir. One night in July 1923, an elderly couple came aboard to buy 25 cases. Once they were loaded up and sailing away, Gertrude heard two loud gunshots.
0: It was a dark night, so the couple hadn't noticed that they were being trailed by a Coast Guard ship. The cutter waited until the couple had loaded their cargo and crossed back over the rum line. Then they fired.
1: Gertrude noted that it was eerily quiet as the Coast Guard towed the couple's boat away. She couldn't verify if anyone had actually been hit, and they never heard anything about that couple again.
0: Gertrude mentioned another frightening Coast Guard raid that occurred during her three weeks in Rum Row. One night, while the Arethusa was surrounded by contact boats full of buyers, the Coast Guard took drastic measures to try to scare them off.
1: In an attempt to force the contact boats to scatter and sail back over the Rum Line, the Coast Guard started firing across the water with a machine gun.
0: We'll see the effects of the Coast Guard's attack after this.
1: Now, back to the story. In July of
0: 1923, 35-year-old Gertrude Lithgow loaded her cargo of alcohol onto the Arethusa and set sail for Rum Row to sell her wares. It was a life of adventure and excitement, meeting strangers and dodging the Coast Guard.
1: But on one July night, the Coast Guard stepped up their tactics firing a machine gun in the direction of the Arethusa and the contact boats full of buyers that surrounded it.
0: On deck, Gertrude could feel the bullets whizzing by. As she ducked for cover, she heard a man yell that he had been hit. According to Gertrude, the fallen man was a beloved member of the Arethusa's crew, nicknamed Tampa. He died from his wounds.
1: Tampa was a short, heavy-set man from Florida, who valued loyalty and friendship. He was buried at sea early the next morning. The crew all took turns reading from the Bible before sending Tampa on his way.
0: But when they weren't under attack from the Coast Guard,
1: life at Rum Row was
0: actually pretty dull. Cargo ships anchored in the floating marketplace for up to a month at a time, not returning to the Bahamas until all of the bottles had been sold.
1: Sometimes the Arethusa hosted visitors. By now, rumors of the woman bold enough to run her own liquor had reached the mainland, and buyers were curious to see this anomaly for themselves.
0: One night in late July, 1923, two women accompanied their husbands on a buying trip, eager for the chance to meet Gertrude.
1: After chatting with them for a short while, Gertrude realized how isolated she felt being the only woman on Rum Row, The visiting women were on board for less than an hour, but Gertrude felt devastated when they went.
0: In a 2014 study on stress and gender, psychologists from the University of Vienna found that men and women respond to stressful situations differently. When men are stressed, they tend to withdraw from others emotionally. Women, on the other hand, become more social and feel the need to discuss their feelings. The constant threat of danger made Rum Row a very stressful place. It's possible that Gertrude felt isolated because the men on the Arethusa didn't feel the need to talk about the terrifying things they all experienced.
1: Seeing those women, if only briefly, reminded Gertrude of the social interaction she needed but wasn't getting.
0: During the day, when they weren't hosting customers, the crew passed the time by fishing and shooting. Bill took extra care to instruct Gertrude during target
1: practice. She couldn't help but be impressed by his strength and patience. Sometimes the crew taunted the Coast Guard, singing songs like What Do You Do With A Drunken Sailor and How Dry Am I. Gertrude wrote that once the crew made a dummy out of an old liquor case and a watermelon, dressed it up like a woman and tossed it overboard. They thought it was hysterical when the Coast Guard fished it out of the water to examine it.
0: One day, a Greek schooner challenged the Arethusa to a race. Everyone on board was thrilled to participate in a challenge that would break up the day's monotony.
1: The Arethusa and the Greek schooner were bow to bow for most of the race. Bill was so focused on winning that he didn't notice how close they were to the maritime border. A Coast Guard
0: cutter spotted the ship and sped towards them. Bill hated to lose, but he conceded the race so they could get quickly back over the Rum Line and sail away from the authorities.
1: By August 1st, 1923, after three weeks in Rum Row, Gertrude had sold all of her cargo. Bill still had a bit of liquor to sell, so he arranged for his brother, Ben, to take Gertrude to New York on his motorboat the next time he came for a cash deposit. She planned to stay in the city with her sister, Sarah, until she heard from the London office.
0: According to her memoirs, Gertrude and Bill had a tearful goodbye. She claimed that he, quote, grabbed me in his arms, holding me so tight, I felt as though I was being crushed by an octopus, end
1: quote. Gertrude and Bill never admitted that they were in love, but their individual memoirs both show that they had a deep affection for one another. Bill even kept a photo album of pictures from their trip together to Rum Row. Gertrude
0: kissed Bill goodbye and joined his brother, Ben, on the speedboat. Ben dropped Gertrude off in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, where she planned to take a taxi into Manhattan.
1: After spending three weeks on board the Arethusa, Gertrude looked, in her words, like an escapee from a mental institution.
0: Her feet and hair were wet from the boat and her dress was wrinkled she had a hard time finding a taxi driver who would take her to the luxurious Waldorf Astoria Hotel.
1: Gertrude raised further suspicions when she informed her driver that the only money she had was a $1,000 bill, an amount equivalent to over $14,000 today.
0: When they arrived at the hotel, Gertrude had the taxi wait outside until she could get proper change. She said that the driver breathed a sigh of relief when he finally received his payment and a healthy tip.
1: The next day, Ben brought Gertrude her earnings. He had been storing them ashore for safety, along with Bill's money. Terrified to be walking around New York City with all that cash, she tried to make herself look dowdy for the trip to the bank by wearing a heavy coat and no makeup. She arrived at the bank safely and immediately had them wire the funds to her London office.
0: Gertrude was triumphant that her big gamble had paid off. But the London office wasn't pleased. Instead, the news of her trip to Rum Row was like a bomb exploding at the firm. They thought that Gertrude's behavior was impetuous and reckless. She was ordered to return to London immediately to explain her actions before the board of directors.
1: Gertrude was nervous as she booked her passage to London on the SS Leviathan. She had felt so sure that the firm would praise her for her courage. But now, it seemed like she was in danger of getting fired. After a year of adventure, Gertrude didn't want to go back to secretarial work. Gertrude set sail
0: in September of 1923. She wanted her voyage to be a quiet one, so she could prepare herself for the firm's interrogations. Wanting to meet as few people as possible, she requested to be placed at a small table for evening dinners.
1: She was assigned to a four-person table for the duration of the 10-day trip. Every evening, Gertrude dined with an English actor returning home after failing to make it in Hollywood, a Parisian businessman, and a British man named H. DeWinton Wigley, who was returning from a holiday in the States. She entertained them all with tales of her trip to Rum Row.
0: Once she reached London, Gertrude gave the firm's board of directors a full account of her work in the Bahamas. She explained to her superiors how the other liquor wholesalers on the island had tried to freeze her out of the business. Her impetuous trip to Rum Row was a risk she needed to take in order to make them a profit.
1: After Gertrude's speech, the board of directors was impressed with her bravery and devotion to the company. To reward her service, They gave Gertrude 500 stock shares and a percentage of the liquor profits.
0: The morning after the board of directors meeting, Gertrude was astounded to see a photo of herself staring back at her from the front page of the London Daily News, with the headline proclaiming that she was Cleopatra, Queen of the Bootleggers.
1: Gertrude said that she was extremely upset by all the publicity. After seeing the headlines, the London office ordered her to end her trip early and return to Nassau.
0: This was only the first in a series of articles written by H. DeWinton Wigley, one of Gertrude's dinner companions on her transatlantic trip. When she regaled him with her stories, he had failed to mention that he was a British Secret Service agent and
1: a journalist for the London Daily News. The series was later published as a book called With the Whiskey Smugglers. Gertrude was given a
0: queen's welcome when she arrived back in the Bahamas in October of 1923.
1: Her successful trip to Rum Row proved that she was willing to do whatever it took to sell her liquor. By making that seemingly impossible journey, she gained the respect of the bootleggers who previously snubbed her.
0: Back at the Lucerne Hotel, the bartender gave a round of free drinks in honor of
1: Gertrude's return. Everyone
0: made toasts hailing Queen Cleo.
1: Mother, the Lucerne's gray-haired proprietress, gifted Gertrude with a suite on the ground floor that could be used as her own private parlor. This became known as the throne room.
0: One person was noticeably absent from Gertrude's homecoming celebrations. Her business partner, a fuddy-duddy Englishman everyone on the island called the Duke, a brother of one of the firm's senior partners, the Duke had always been a lazy and often silly co-worker.
1: According to the island's gossips, the Duke faced mass ridicule for allowing a woman to make such a dangerous voyage by herself while he stayed in the comfort of his office and played bridge. It was impossible for the Duke to go anywhere in Nassau without being reminded of what a cad he was, so he fled to Cuba. Two weeks after her arrival in Nassau, Gertrude took it upon herself to go and retrieve him.
0: In late October 1923, Gertrude found the Duke in Havana. He had put himself up in great style at the Plaza Hotel. As they caught up on business matters, the Duke delivered some troubling news. He had negotiated a deal to furnish 1,000 cases of whiskey to smugglers headed for New Orleans on a ship called the Gladys Thornburn but he hadn't received any money up front.
1: That amount of whiskey would have been worth around $50,000 in 1923, the equivalent of over $730,000 today.
0: The Duke explained that he had met two sailors named Fred Young and Buddy LaRocca, who chartered a schooner for the trip. He planned to fill up their ship with the firm's cargo and travel with them to the Gulf Coast, where they'd sell the liquor and split profits 50-50.
1: He assured Gertrude that the men were honest and she had nothing to fear, as he would be on the ship with the cargo, just as she had been on the Arethusa with hers.
0: But Gertrude saw through the arrangement immediately. Without a down payment, there would be nothing to keep the men from stealing the goods and keeping all the profit for themselves.
1: Gertrude tried to put a stop to the deal, racing down to the docks to stop the loading, but she was too late. The schooner, filled with the firm's merchandise, had already set sail.
0: Furious, Gertrude ordered the Duke on a passenger boat to New Orleans. Hopefully, he'd be able to catch up with the bootleggers and reclaim the stock before everything was lost.
1: Weeks turned into months, and soon, Gertrude was receiving letters from the Duke's family, who also hadn't heard from him. By early 1924, everyone assumed that once he had met up with the corrupt bootleggers, He'd been fed to the sharks.
0: Eventually, a story reached Gertrude about two bootleggers who stole 1,000 cases of British whiskey and smuggled them into New Orleans. The goods had been diluted with water and sold with different labels. The Duke, afraid to face the wrath of Gertrude and the firm, was hiding out in a dilapidated apartment in New Orleans.
1: Gertrude was obviously upset over the loss of the goods, but was determined to work hard and recoup her losses without the interference of the duke. But she found her
0: business was often interrupted by her growing fame from DeWinton's book With the Whiskey Smugglers. In Nassau, Gertrude was a full-blown celebrity.
1: She was inundated with hundreds of fan letters. She received love letters and marriage proposals. Others wanted to borrow money or invite her to their birthday parties.
0: Nassau became a stop for cruise ships, and soon, Gertrude was mobbed by tourists, eager for a glimpse of the Bahama Queen. She started carrying a parasol with her to shield herself from people's cameras. Gertrude claimed she hated the attention.
1: However, she also consented to a photo shoot in the summer of 1924, with a photographer who was visiting the island from Washington, D.C. She allowed him to take portraits of her in a swimsuit on the beach. And within days, these photos were published in newspapers, with the caption, Empress of the Bootleggers.
0: According to a 2009 study published in the Journal of Phenomenological Psychology, love-hate is the first step in the four stages of fame. Study participants, who were all considered celebrities at some point in their lives, admitted that there was a guilty pleasure associated with the thrill of being admired. They loved the attention, then hated themselves for loving it. This love-hate theory could explain why Gertrude vacillated between embracing the press and hiding from them.
1: In December of 1923, Gertrude accepted an invitation to write six autobiographical articles about her life of adventure for a national newspaper syndicate.
0: The syndicate paid for her to travel to New York City, where she could work on the articles while spending time with her sister, Sarah.
1: Her first piece described how she quit her job as a hotel stenographer to cross the Atlantic and join the London import-export firm.
0: Another article detailed the ins and outs of life in Rum Row. One was just a reprinting of a few of the absurd marriage proposals she had received from fans.
1: Even the trip to New York was fodder for the press, Newspapers reported that Gertrude was coming to Gotham in search of a husband. They said that she was willing to forego the lucrative and exciting rum-running business in favor of marriage with the right man.
0: In reality, marriage was far from Gertrude's mind. She enjoyed her independence and proclaimed that she would never be beholden to a man.
1: The public couldn't get enough of Gertrude's adventures. Readers were hungry for more and more stories about this beautiful buccaneer and her exploits dodging the Coast Guard.
0: According to Dr. Scott Bonn, a professor of criminology at Drew University, people are drawn to crime stories because they receive a jolt of adrenaline when hearing about other people's misdeeds. Adrenaline can provide a euphoric effect, similar to the thrill one feels when riding a roller coaster. Gertrude's descriptions of Rum Row made them feel like they were there.
1: After completing the article series, Gertrude returned to Nassau in January of 1924 and enjoyed her status as Queen of the Rum Runners. Once a pariah, Rum Runners were now eager to bring Gertrude's high quality liquor with them on their own trips to Rum Row. By not
0: going to Rum Row herself, Gertrude was able to sell a higher quantity of liquor more quickly. From her office on Market Street, she could handle business with the London firm and the Nassau Run-Rummers without the threat of the Coast Guard's bullets.
1: Writer Netley Lucas described a meeting he had with Gertrude that year. After they had dinner together at the Lucerne, he asked her if she actually enjoyed the rum game.
0: She shrugged and replied, quote, Why not? It's true that I might have preferred a comfortable, well-ordered house in New York or London with a round of tea parties and little social events, but I have all this.
1: In spite of her success and fame, Gertrude's lucky star began to fade in 1925. The series of setbacks that followed would threaten her life and business, forcing her to resign from rum-running entirely.
0: Coming up... Gertrude contends with a shipwreck and a false arrest. Now back to the story.
1: By 1925, 37-year-old Gertrude Lithgow was famous world over for her rum-running exploits. But her celebrity began to make things difficult whenever she had to pass through customs.
0: Once after a trip to Cuba, Gertrude stopped through Key West on her way back to the Bahamas, There, she was arrested by officials who accused her of trying to smuggle in narcotics.
1: Gertrude was strip-searched. The heels of her shoes were removed and her bags were torn apart. Gertrude assumed that one of her rivals had given the officials a bad tip just to humiliate her. After an agonizing few hours, the officials admitted that they had found nothing and let Gertrude go.
0: In addition to the nuisance of her notoriety, by March of 1925, the liquor business in Nassau had started to dwindle. The market was saturated with diluted and off-brand products that were sold for a fraction of what Gertrude charged.
1: Buyers wanted quantity over quality and were unwilling to pay Gertrude's prices anymore.
0: Looking for a new market, she arranged to charter a schooner to Bimini, a small island located about 140 miles north of Nassau. She thought she could easily sell her liquor to the American tourists there.
1: The ship, called the Venturer, had a three-man crew. The journey, which took several hours, was a stormy one. Gertrude was thankful when they finally docked in Bimini Bay. Unfortunately, this was just the calm before an even larger storm.
0: Later that night, while Gertrude and the crew slept below deck, a fierce storm blew in.
1: Strong winds tossed the Venturer around the bay, The engine room flooded and the sails were torn to shreds. Then a large wave lifted the schooner up and threw it against sharp rocks. There was no choice but to abandon ship. Gertrude and the crew piled into a lifeboat and made their way to shore.
0: Gertrude described the ordeal writing, as the violently churned water swept me over the side of the Venturer, my figure was thrown against the deck rail top for a moment, I thought I had broken a leg, but the wave, like some powerful magnet, drew me on and on into the liquid blackness.
1: She continued, quote, it wasn't only drowning I dreaded, for that is a comparatively easy death. No, there was a horror lying in wait for me, a menace that has always been the supreme terror, the ultimate horror, sharks.
0: The next morning, Gertrude assessed the damage to the Venturer, which now rested on top of a coral reef. She was determined to salvage her cargo, which she estimated as being worth $80,000, or $1,500,000 today. She paid island natives to retrieve whatever had survived the shipwreck. The islanders formed a line from the shore to the ship and passed the liquor bottles hand-to-hand.
1: At the end of the line, Gertrude counted the merchandise before it was loaded into carts and taken to a warehouse. She refused to rest until her stock was all retrieved. She stayed on in Bimini for nearly a month, not willing to leave until she sold every last drop of her salvaged cargo.
0: Afterward, Gertrude sailed to Miami to take a well-deserved break. However, her bad luck only continued.
1: In October of 1925, while shopping in a department store, Gertrude was arrested when she was confused for a different woman who had written bad checks.
0: She was released as soon as the authorities realized their mistake, but Gertrude was indignant over the whole situation. She filed a lawsuit against the department store for $100,000.
1: The next morning, newspapers diligently reported about both the arrest and the lawsuit, Unfortunately, the gossip rags caused Gertrude more trouble than usual.
0: A few days after her release, on October 14, 1925, Gertrude received a visit from a U.S. marshal who had a new warrant for her arrest. She was wanted for smuggling 1,000 cases
1: of whiskey from Cuba to New Orleans on the Gladys Thornburn. The Gladys Thornburn was the ship that had sailed away without the Duke in Havana nearly two years earlier.
0: It's unclear how the federal government was able to connect Gertrude to the Duke's business deal, but her recent publicity had definitely tipped them off to her whereabouts.
1: Gertrude was escorted to the federal building, where she was informed by the commissioner that she would be allowed to go home if she paid $1,000 in bail. He told Gertrude that he hoped she would be able to make the payment as jail was hardly a place for a white woman.
0: She paid the bail and returned home, where she was to stay until extradition papers arrived from New Orleans.
1: Gertrude was angry when she heard newsboys yelling about her arrest. According to her memoirs, she shuddered when she heard and felt like slapping them.
0: One week later, a deputy marshal arrived to escort Gertrude to New Orleans for trial. The marshal's wife also accompanied them, and they all shared a compartment on the evening train to New Orleans.
1: The marshal's wife was instructed to watch Gertrude closely, and she took the job very seriously. Gertrude lamented that the woman never took her eyes off of her, even when she was washing.
0: As the train neared Biloxi, Mississippi, about 100 miles away from their final destination, the marshal noticed that a trio of men kept walking past their compartment. Gertrude heard one of them mutter, there's the queen now.
1: No one knew who these strangers were, but the marshal suspected that they were either reporters, kidnappers, or assassins.
0: Uneasy with their presence, the marshal immediately sent a telegram to New Orleans to ask how he should handle the situation.
1: When the marshal received his response from his superiors in New Orleans, there was suddenly a flurry of activity. Gertrude was told to gather her things as they would be making an emergency stop and getting off the train early.
0: As Gertrude stepped off the train, she saw two policemen waiting for her. They grabbed hold of her arms and threw a blanket over her head, apparently in an attempt to shield her from the gathered reporters and photographers. The men led her into a waiting car that would drive her the rest of the way to New Orleans.
1: On the drive, Gertrude learned that the three men on the train had been planning to kidnap her away from the authorities. Her memoir didn't explain why these men wanted to kidnap her, but they may have been afraid that she was going to give up information about important players in the rum trade.
0: When they arrived at the federal building in New Orleans, they realized that the place was mobbed with reporters.
1: It was decided that the marshal's wife would create a diversion, by pretending to be Gertrude. She was escorted up the steps with the blanket over her head, while Gertrude was brought in through a side door undetected.
0: Once inside, Gertrude spent an exhausting few hours signing paperwork and answering questions. Eventually, she was allowed to go to a nearby hotel where she shared a room with the marshal's hawk-eyed wife.
1: At 10 o'clock the next morning, Gertrude appeared before the Assistant United States Attorney General. She explained how the Duke had made the deal behind her back and how she had tried to stop the shipment as soon as she learned of it. As she had made no money from the deal, she was essentially a victim.
0: Gertrude spent the whole day repeating her story to various officials and giving interviews to the press. She was exhausted by the time the verdict was given later that afternoon. The assistant attorney general agreed to release her, as long as she came back to testify against the Duke during his trial.
1: The Duke went on trial in early December of 1925, about seven weeks after Gertrude's arrest. She claimed that when she saw the Duke being escorted past her in the courthouse, she tried to slap him. Gertrude was taken to a private holding room to cool off before testifying.
0: Gertrude was on the witness stand for two hours before the judge recessed for lunch. When she was escorted out of the courthouse by two federal agents, a reporter ran up and tried to snap a photo. One of the agents knocked the camera out of his hand and the man retaliated by punching the agent in the face.
1: Soon a fight broke out and Gertrude was immediately brought back into the courthouse. She never got any lunch.
0: A verdict was reached on December 9, 1925. Only one man, Fred Young, was convicted. The other sailor and the Duke were free to go.
1: Gertrude had promised herself before the trial that if she survived the ordeal unscathed, she would quit the liquor business entirely. Both the shipwreck of the Venturer and the arrest convinced Gertrude that it was time to find more legitimate work. The firm, who had done nothing to help Gertrude while she was being held in New Orleans, would have to find a replacement.
0: Gertrude returned to Nassau only to retrieve her things and say her goodbyes. As she sailed away from the island for the last time, the British flag was lowered to half-mast in her honor. She was touched by the tribute, especially after she had worked so hard to gain everyone's respect.
1: Gertrude Lithgow returned to New York City and stayed with her sister, Sarah, while she tried to figure out her next steps. She had originally booked herself into the Waldorf Astoria, but reporters kept showing up at her door. She was eager to put her rum-running days behind her, but the press still tormented her.
0: According to Dr. Cristina Villarreal, a person's natural response to intense scrutiny is increased self-consciousness and paranoia. Many celebrities grow to feel resentful of the spotlight, and many act out because they feel suffocated by their public image.
1: To get the press to leave her alone, Gertrude decided to tell them one final story about the Bahama Queen, one that was so outlandish, it would destroy her credibility.
0: In April of 1926, 38-year-old Gertrude held a press conference in the Upper West Side apartment she shared with her sister, Sarah. The reporters, who were expecting the beautiful queen of the bootleggers to be living in luxury, were surprised by what they found.
1: Gertrude sat in a corner, chain-smoking, and nervously looking out the window, constantly checking for someone. She was dressed entirely in purple, and told the press that it was to protect her from bad juju. She told
0: them that she was a nervous wreck, and undoubtedly cursed.
1: A jinx had been following her for the last year, causing bad luck. Ever since the shipwreck in Bimini, she was a shell of a woman plagued by anxieties over the horrors that may come.
0: This is how Gertrude described her experience for the Milwaukee Journal.
1: Quote, I'm out of it for good. I just beat my jinx before it beat me. It was terrible to watch it coming. I saw the signs from the time I left Nassau with my last cargo in 1925. I wasn't on a rum running deal at that time. I was just taking some whiskey from Nassau to another British island on my own boat, the Venturer and the boat went down in the harbor, like that. Later, they said they found a hidden reef, but I know it was my jinx that wrecked the boat.
0: The next day, papers reported that Gertrude was nervous and ill, and that for a woman in her late 20s, Gertrude looked old and haggard. In truth, she was actually 38 at the
1: time. But Gertrude's gambit had paid off. She successfully made it seem like she'd gone mad. After 1926, the Queen never made another headline again, and she spent the next 20 years putting her rum-running days behind her.
0: But she never stopped thinking about Captain Bill McCoy. They hadn't been in contact since Gertrude had left the Arethusa in 1923.
1: In 1946, then 58-year-old Gertrude was visiting some friends in Boston, when she learned that 69-year-old Bill was docked in nearby Gloucester, Massachusetts. Bill was retired and enjoyed sailing his yacht up and down the East Coast. She immediately wrote to him to expect a visit from her.
0: In her memoir, Gertrude wrote a very cinematic reunion. Too afraid to climb onto his boat in her high heels, she claimed that Bill lifted her in his arms as he covered her with kisses. They spent a lovely day together, picnicking on the deck of his yacht and reminiscing.
1: As she got ready to catch her train back to Boston, Bill asked her to stay with him. They could spend their golden years together, sailing around the world. But she
0: refused his spontaneous invitation. Even at 58, Gertrude wasn't ready to settle down. She promised to someday meet him in Miami,
1: where they'd take a
0: trip together to the South Seas.
1: That vacation never happened. Bill died of a heart attack on his boat, the Blue Lagoon, in Stewart, Florida, on December 30th, 1948. He was 71.
0: Gertrude spent her post-Nassau years in Detroit, Michigan, with her sister, Sarah. Always the enterprising businesswoman, she ran a successful car rental business for 25 years. She passed away in Los Angeles in June of 1974, at the age of 86.
1: One of the most prevailing symbols of the 1920s is the flapper. Young, independent women who disregarded their parents' Victorian ideals in favor of dancing and fun.
0: No one embodied the Jazz Age spirit, quite like Gertrude Lithgow. With her bobbed hair and stylish dresses, she looked like the kind of woman who spent her nights drinking champagne and dancing at clubs.
1: Instead, she was a buccaneer who'd rather be selling whiskey from the deck of the Arethusa than attending parties.
0: In a male-dominated business that was full of gangsters and crooks, Gertrude was fearless. In spite of adversity, Gertrude persevered, and by doing so, she captured the world's admiration.
1: In the biography of her memoir, she is described... Gertrude's no-nonsense style and business skills earned her riches and the respect of Prohibition's roughest smugglers. Impeccably dressed and always carrying a gun, Gertrude remained ever a lady. She carried many monikers, but for four years, she reigned supreme, the Bahama Queen.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode.
1: You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Kate McKear and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.